On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. We're joined in studio by the Taoiseach and the leader of Fianna Fáil, Micheál Martin. Taoiseach, thank you very much for coming to us this lunchtime. You're very welcome, Kevin. Um, there are uh, some conflicting reports on the front pages of today's papers around uh, whether there are more measures planned to deal with the cost of living. For example, the Sunday Times says that there will be some measures announced in the budget which will take near immediate effect, but that they're only going to be announced on budget day in October. The Irish Mail on Sunday tells us that there's going to be something akin to a Christmas welfare bonus, like the double payment, uh, which might be coming in only a matter of weeks. Uh, which is it? Are, are you doing something or are you not? Well, fundamentally, uh, the summer economic statement will be the key next milestone in relation to uh, the budget and the wider cost of living issue. And what do I mean by that? Well, the summer economic statement will lay out um, what is available um, in terms of funds and so on and, and, and resources to help alleviate pressures on people. Uh, and the objective and the aim is to do that comprehensively in the budget itself because we can chase it month to month. Um, and however, Anything we do in the budget around cost of living, quite a significant amount of it will have immediate application. Okay. We're going to work on that some, so if you announce, somewhat similar to last year. So in, if you announce an, an increase in, in the dole, for example, or in the old age pension, it would take immediate effect and yes, not be Yes, that's, that's what we're months. working towards, that it would have immediate application. We're very conscious we're dealing with a very uncertain situation. Uh, if you look even at the energy situation, it's bad. It's very, very bad for people out there because of the war in Ukraine and all that's happening around that. But if you look only this week again, Russia is now reducing its gas supplies via Nord Stream uh, to the west. That could create even further problems as we head into the winter. And I'm very conscious that the winter could be challenging uh, from an energy perspective and cost of living perspective. So we need to really work on the sort of evidence approach, evidence-based approach of the SRI report that, that was published this week mm. and look at targeted, in some instances, temporary measures that, measures that get us through this crisis for people, uh, but also measures that would dovetail uh, with more sustainable, you know, long-term po- yeah. policies that we're doing but, anyway in, t- in terms of public transport fares sure. being reduced but, and so on. But w- when you say that you want to do it with one eye on the budget, does that mean that you are ruling out anything taking immediate effect in that summer economic statement next month or is there some yeah. scope to do it? You're just not I, I don't see things taking effect uh, as, as the summer economic statement has been, has been announced. I think what the summer economic statement will set the scene in terms of uh, both the Minister for Finance and Minister for Public Expenditure identifying uh, the, the likely resources we are to have available yeah. um, to, to spend so, so and nothing, to alleviate pressure. So nothing that would be on the spot. Well, that's, not the planned, a... that's not planned for now and we will meet again. Uh, obviously government will meet on this. There will be a meeting uh, this week mm. in terms of the three party leaders and the Ministers of Finance and Public Expenditure uh, to discuss the summer economic statement in the first instance because that's very important in terms of the overall amount of money uh, that will be available to us. And we are very conscious of the acute pressures on people. We we do get that. We know it will be a cost of living budget, mm. but I think we have to do it in a way that's sustainable because we simply cannot have a package month to mm. month. But you understand why people might wonder whether you do actually uh, have an ear to the ground and what people are experiencing. If you have the reports, as you just mentioned yourself, the SRI report on, on energy poverty or people who are now paying almost half of their take-home pay, they're, they're paying in rent immediately, then they could be paying another 10% on energy bills and and they only keep going up and up. It's getting dearer to fill the car in spite of excise cuts. And you're saying that even if you do something immediately in the budget, well, the budget is four months away, so they're not going to get the any help before The budget's not four then. months away, no. Um, I mean, it's very it's early October that it's pencilled in for uh, right now. So, so it's four weeks um, minus a week. But I mean, the point I'm trying to say is that basically that, uh, you, you know, we have a long winter uh, heading in the home heating oil and and, and so on the, the cost of heating will be will, will be significant whatever we do has to be substantial has to be comprehensive in my view 
Um, and if we just start doing packages uh, one month and then the next month, the pressure will continue and continue. I think it's far better uh, that we do more sustained, comprehensive measures uh, that will be sustainable over the winter period and take people through the winter period where the pressures will be significant. And again, I stress the uncertainty in the world economy here because of the war on Ukraine, its prolongation, uh, the degree to which Russia will endeavour to use energy to put pressure on the West mm. and therefore on gas supplies and potentially on costs. So what, what do you say um, then so to, to those we have to, Sorry. You, know, you say the front page of the Sunday Independent today, record numbers of people calling MABS, over double the number that were calling two, month, uh, two years ago, uh, a, a level of calls that MABS haven't seen since the recession when uh, unemployment was at 15%. And you're saying that, oh, yes, you want to be comprehensive, you want it to be sustainable, but that nothing is going to be announced or take effect until well, the budget. What, what well, do you well, say to them about holding tight in the meantime. But what we're saying to people is that like, unlike previous budgets, what we will be doing will have immediate impact this year uh, so that we can that people can budget through the winter period. Mm. But a lot of people just can't afford costs. to wait, Tisha. Well, I think you, you, we, we could say that every week, Gavin. We, we, we've already announced two and a half billion um, uh, over the last uh, eight months, if you take the budget into account, plus the measures we did last week. That's two and a half billion, uh, which is a substantial amount to tr- endeavour to alleviate pressures on the public in respect of fuel and energy crisis in, and, and more cost of living crisis in, in general. In hindsight, was it a failure not to introduce a more formal mini budget halfway along? And I'll give an example for why, and I said this earlier in the first hour as well. Let's say for argument's sake, these aren't the official figures, but you assign 100 million euro and you intend to deliver 300 houses with that 100 million euro. And then construction inflation takes off in the meantime and suddenly your 100 million does not deliver 300 houses. It might only deliver 250 for argument's sake. But the country needs the 300 houses. So therefore, the target that you'd set aside in the previous year's budget isn't going to be met. Would it not have made some sense, given that the government spending power is weakened as well, to have had a mini-budget somewhere along the way so you could still deliver all the things that you promised last October? Well, the mini-budgets in themselves don't deliver. Uh, I mean, the same principle applies to whatever you announce in a mini-budget as, uh, as, as to a cost of living uh, programme. In other words, uh, budgets generally are revenue-raising um, or, 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 and, and increased expenditure mm. or a neutralised revenue situation and so on. Um, and in our view, that's why it makes sense. Because remember, right now, we have to discuss expenditure across every single government department, which is linked to cost of living. I mean, we could do something sort of, you, you could do something very short term, but we have to, in terms of a summary economic statement, know what we want to spend on childcare. Mm. We need to know that now in the next number of weeks. What are we going to spend on housing? How do we alleviate pressure for people renting and so on like that? And what can we do there? Um, So you do need to know the expenditure profile and the Minister for Public Expenditure does discussing with every single minister. That's all part of the the cost of living. So, for example, returning to school, the whole area around the cost of education for for, for people Mm. as well. Uh, Just before I move off um, (coughs) the cost of living... um, what do you so then if you're saying to people that there there will be some changes made in the budget and that that that's the earliest that they're going to be you're not planning to do anything else this side of the budget and you've outlined your reasons why um if someone is struggling to fill the tank uh, of their their tractor or their bus or their car or their truck um was Eamon Ryan correct earlier this week to suggest that if they are genuinely struggling that they could go to their local welfare office and seek assistance that way because that doesn't seem like the sort of purpose that those payments are set up for. Well, that not everybody could go to go, go to those offices. There's people who are in genuine hardship and genuine need um, can go to those offices and can seek um, support. Um, and um, that is an avenue that's still open mm. uh, to people who I are in dire I don't think Ryan put that kind of caveat on it. He suggested that it was more wide-ranging than that. <clears throat> well, it's a, people... It, the, the, the definitions are there in terms of genuine hardship uh, and who are you know finding it very difficult uh, to put 
uh, food on the table, for example, so on. Yes, hardship uh, uh, funds and so on uh, through the community welfare system exists uh, to, to respond to people okay. but, uh, but only in very, very difficult only circumstances. Only case of, of genuine hardship and the welfare It's genuine hardship, yeah. It's not societal-wide, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Um, you were speaking this morning on the BBC about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the, the legislation published by the British government this week uh, and you described in advance of that legislation being published the idea that they would do so as a historic low. Um a lot of people will be taken aback by that sort of language because, you know, you're talking about relationships between countries that have had, you know, colonialism, literal war, trade war, guerrilla conflict on this island for 30 years, um, forced occupation, famine. Is it really a historic low between the two countries? Well, we've had 50 years of very good relationships uh, and we still have uh, good relationships with, with Britain. But in terms of reneging on an international treaty, that is quite a historic low point that uh, sovereign government enters into uh, an international agreement with the European Union, recommends its ratification to Parliament, is subsequently ratified by Parliament, um, and then unilaterally uh, legislation is published which effectively gives the power to UK ministers to disapply almost all sections uh, of that agreement, of the protocol, bar three sections. Uh, So that's fairly uh, significant historic departure, particularly from a country like the United Kingdom, which, uh, you know, does enter into international agreements and is part of the wider democratic world and Mm. does adhere, generally speaking, to, uh, as we know, to the... It exported its political uh, system to to a lot of the world. Sorry? It exported its political system to a lot of the world. And it believes in a multilateral rules-based order. Mm. Uh, and that's why a lot of people are taken back by this unilateral move. But, but they would say that there, there is basically a constitutional crisis, though, in Northern <coughs> Ireland. That the only way that they can remedy that and to try and have functioning government in Northern Ireland is to take the measures that they've taken. Well, I don't think that's a, a tenable position to adopt. I mean, first of all, there's a, the, the key alternative to the alternative to this measure is to enter into serious negotiations with the European Union. I mean, the European Union has acknowledged uh, that there are issues to be resolved in terms of the operation of the protocol. Um, and, you know, uh, Maris Sefcic, the Vice President of the European Commission, met with Northern Ireland political parties last year, met with business and industry um, and came forward with a set of proposals in October. He's now fleshing out some of those proposals and papers that he's uh, publishing. Uh, and the British government hasn't really responded uh, to those, um, to that initiative. And in fact, did the opposite, really. Lord Frost at the time in October said, mm. Oh, this this doesn't deal with the ECJ. We acknowledge there are issues there to be resolved. Unionist okay. parties have brought those up. We believe they can be resolved through negotiation. It doesn't necessitate this. And the other point I would quickly make is mm. we've met with Northern Business and Industry. I have very recently. They're very alarmed at this bill, this dual regulatory standards approach, which they feel could really seriously undermine uh, industry in Northern Ireland, particularly the food industry, agriculture. Because it doubles the bureaucracy. Basically, well, more than that, it's, it 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 damages the integrity of the supply chain, uh, particularly in the food product. You, you, if you have two, two sets of standards, uh, so milk that is produced under one set of standards, for example, uh, UK, vis-a-vis that uh, in the EU, uh, you, you could and given the seamless um, processing and, and, and supply chain in, in dairy, for example, on the island, mm-hmm. uh, 
the marketplace may not mm. be satisfied in terms of the integrity of the product. Mm. Manufacturing are saying to us in Northern Ireland that they're having a very significant upside at the moment. They're doing very well, best mm. in 19 years. Yeah, and, and that worries me more than anything yeah, about this bill. The ONS, the, the British equivalent of the CSO, said the same this week. Um, you said this week that you, you don't believe in some aspects that the UK actually understands the Good Friday Agreement. What did you mean by that? Well, I have a, a feeling and a sense that the, the, the UK government, um, not that they don't understand, well, that they're not as wedded to the DNA of the Good Friday Agreement um, as earlier governments might have been. Uh, and what do I mean by that? I mean essentially that it, 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 the anchor of the Good Friday Agreement is the fact that the two governments co-guarantee the, mm. the agreement are, are co-guarantors and there should be a more um, involved heads-up approach and discussion of issues before they're unilaterally mm. launched. Is, is it possible that maybe just the two governments have different understandings of what Good Friday requires? No, not this time. I, I think if you look at human rights, for example, if you look at the legacy issue, and now if you look at the protocol, there's been a trend towards unilateralism. Now, some of that may be due, may be due to the situation vis-à-vis Scotland and the, the British government's uh, view on the union uh, from its perspective. Uh, and if you notice that in, in, in Wales and Scotland and indeed in Northern Ireland, uh, Whitehall is moving out. There's kind of embryonic departments being formed. Uh, even in Northern Ireland, the British mm. government is much more higher profile in terms of some aspects of it. And all of that, to me, seems to run contrary to the devolutionary aspects of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, where you but have an executive in Northern Ireland government. that's designed uh, to, to, to run key issues like uh, housing and, and, and so forth. Would you wonder sometimes if the institutions in the North and the institutions under Good Friday are actually fit for purpose now? Because when Good Friday was designed, there wasn't really a thought of there being anything other than unionist and nationalist. You now have this growing other vote, including one of mm-hmm. your, your sister parties in, in Aldi, the, the Alliance Party. And you have increasingly one side being able to effectively veto the functioning. The DUP are doing it now. Sinn Féin did it for three years. It seems like increasingly that maybe Good Friday is kind of past its sell-by date. There's, there's, there's fair points made there in terms of what you said in terms of um, issues that may need change. But in the first instance, I would say that the Assembly election was fought under the existing structures and those elections should be honoured. And uh, that means Sinn Féin should uh, have the First Minister, First Minister, Deputy First Minister, DUP. No, they're both the same office, the yeah. same power and all the rest of it. Uh, it's just a symbolism of it. But the point I would make is that before the next assembly election, what you're saying there does need to be reviewed and examined and debated between all of the parties in Northern Ireland because the politics are changing. So they need to and debate their own constitutional future, the, basically. The, yeah, with the two governments, we should look. We, I, I, I wouldn't be um, opposed to that. I do think it needs fresh thinking in terms of how the, the, the executive and the assembly mm. works more effectively than it has over the lifetime of the Good uh, Friday Agreement because there has been too much start-stop putting down the executive when one group didn't get its way and so on. Uh, going back to the, the protocol for a minute, um, if this does result, if what Britain has done this week results in the collapse of the, the, the deal that was famously done on Christmas Eve a couple of years ago, um, what happens next then? Because if uh, there isn't any willingness to conduct the, the sea border checks, as they're called, to have this border in the Irish Sea, if they're not part of the single market that we're in, there has to be checks somewhere. So doesn't that mean that we go back to exactly what we didn't want and having checks on the border? No, we won't be going back there. Um, and then I what think do we the, do? Well, I think the, the, what has to happen, we take a step by step here. Uh, the British government are saying, and is saying, sorry, that uh, it wants to negotiate. It would prefer a negotiated settlement. Well, I met with Mara Sefcovic last week, uh, spoke to President von der Leyen, 
um, they are very clear that they would like a negotiated settlement. Um, and to me, the obvious thing to do now is to engage in that because this is an EU-UK issue now, mm. um, not an Irish-UK issue. Uh, and it's important. But that Irish, really Irish-UK relationships could help. To bring the back to the table, your uh, predecessor yeah. went for a walk in the Wirral and, and we have helped through no one expected. And we did help and we and Maris Hefkic went to Northern Ireland last year. We spoke to Maris Hefkic and the Vice President of the Commission. We have sensitised the Commission to the issues that were raised with us by Northern Ireland Business and Industry and by Northern Ireland Political Is the goodwill there on both sides to really get something done though? That remains to be seen. I think the goodwill is certainly there on the European Union side. I have no doubt about that. Europe doesn't want a row with the United Kingdom. It would much prefer if this issue could be resolved. But they don't simply know whether Britain, mm. the British government wants a result or indeed what the landing zone is for the UK government. We have some idea of where the landing zone is in terms of the demands the, the of unionist politicians in terms of goods going from UK mm. to Northern Ireland. But the UK government has a habit of putting additional issues on the table uh, as issues are being resolved. So take last year, medicines was resolved. It was one of the bigger issues 12 months ago. It got resolved mm. through so, good flexibility by the Commission and the European Parliament, which voted through legislation to, you, to accommodate you, that. You might argue, though, that, that some of the comments, like the comment you just made about, you know, putting more issues on the table at the last minute, it, it might be a correct analysis, but a lot of people would think it's the sort of thing that uh, a Taoiseach or a Prime Minister shouldn't say. I mean, you've said earlier this week that Britain doesn't, doesn't understand the Good Friday Agreement. You've said today they're maybe not as wedded to it as some of their predecessors were. You've said that this is more about internal Tory politics and Boris Johnson's leadership than it might be about constitutional future. Futures. You've said that prime ministers have a habit of bigging something up before they do it, and then trying to talk it down when it's actually done to downplay the significance of what they've just been been geeing up. Um, all of that doesn't sound like it sort of creates the environment where something can be get done. You can be accused of of making the atmosphere as toxic as they are. No, I don't think the word toxic is appropriate to the comments I've made. Um, and uh, again, we would have advised that the unilateralism is not the correct approach. Unilateralism, unilateralism has never worked in terms of the Good Friday Agreement and it certainly will not work in terms of the agreement that the UK government has entered into um, with the European Union. So um, if they're not toxic, so then what, what are they? What I, what you said, saying, is is no, it just firm, blunt honesty? They're firm, honest appraisers of the situation and assessments, sorry, of the situation. And there's merits and, to that. Um, yes, at, at different points of a relationship, it's very important that you state so how you feel about it. That bl- said, that said... Contact remains open. We're, we're, we're in constant contact. Uh, and our view is that the, the logical way forward is to resolve this through negotiation um, because there's far bigger issues facing the world because of the war in, on Ukraine, which is sure. having a terrible impact economically, but more importantly on the people and the lives of people living in Ukraine. If there is a value and merit to blunt honest assessment, then what did you think when you heard of Michael D. Higgins' assessment of the housing situation this week? Well, first of all, I'm not going to get involved in a debate with the president. I don't think it's right from from our constitution and so on that the Taoiseach debates issues with the president. I think I get on very well. Hold on, just hold on. I get on very well with the president and I engage with the president quite regularly through the Mm. Article 28 procedure where we discuss a whole range uh, of issues and we we discuss issues uh, quite frankly. I'm not asking you necessarily to get into a debate with him because I'm just asking whether you think he was correct or not. Well, I, look, I have a perspective on housing. If you want to talk about housing, fine, but I'm not going to get no. into a, a tit-for-tat well, no, as to well, I'm not inviting you to get into a tit-for-tat either. Well, you kind but, of are. But, but, well, either, either, <laughs> what, either what the president said was right or it was wrong. But I'm just look, asking, as, as, say, as your assessment, I, well, as the democratically appointed head of the executive branch, I'm asking you to tell me which yeah, you Yeah, but I'm, I'm very clear now that I'm not going to get into a debate with the president on this. Uh, that's not appropriate for me as a as teacher of this country. Well, it's in more the appropriate for you to get into a debate than for him. But I will discuss housing with you any time. And if you want to go through housing, fine, I'll go through housing. Uh, and I would say in relation to housing uh, that the government has produced this government two years in office. 
Uh, we had hit by COVID uh, fairly significantly in mm. terms of house construction because of the two lockdowns. But we are this year. Uh, we'll have the largest number of commencements month to month from March to March, about 33,000 uh, since 2007. Uh, we are getting momentum into the housing issue. Mm. It's 50% of all house construction this year will be backed by the state. Uh, we're looking at about 9,000 social houses, um, and uh, which will be the largest ever if we can achieve that in 2022. Mm. But and, I, um, I, I, and I would I, also I, say that... I will get into a substantive yeah. debate about housing in, in just a second, but okay. just on, on the, the, the role of the president, whether it's appropriate for him to do that. You say you don't want to get into a debate. Look, I know you don't want to cause a constitutional crisis on this programme or anywhere else, so I understand why you're saying that. But you're the head of government. You're responsible for the executive branch of the country. You're, yeah. you're responsible for the running of the country. He's not. So when you say it would be inappropriate to get into a debate, it's inappropriate for him to get into a debate, not you. Well, but, I mean, you've asked me a question. I'm not going to get involved in, in a tit for that. I, I have my uh, channel with the president through the Article 20 uh, uh, meetings that we have. We discuss issues on, on a, ra- a wide range of policy with, issues. With that level of vigour? Uh, it's uh, quite engaging. <laughs> uh, the front page of the Business Post today uh, reveals that uh, over 350 homes uh, have been bought by investment vehicles which have paid the higher level of stamp duty, the 10% that you introduced last year, uh, despite that being introduced as a disincentive towards the mass purchase of homes. So these international investors who you introduced a higher stamp duty on intending to stop them from buying up homes that otherwise would go to the market and be bought by first-time buyers and private and, and owner-occupiers mm. are still being bought by those people. I, that I, doesn't seem like it's working then. It's working very well. I mean, the headlines and so on and, and, and spin and all that, the bottom line is the market has not been dominated by funds. Not that, And if you go through the stuff that Seamus Coffey's statistics during the week, for example, in relation to stamp duty filings and so on, the, the, the funds are not dominating the housing market. But is, and are, the point, is, and, and are they being disincentivized to the way yes, that you Yes, very significantly. Uh, thousands and thousands of, of houses, up to 13,000, 15,000, I have the exact figures for homeowners have been protected. So the, the measures are working that were introduced. Is there uh, scope the to, to reconsider them or to bring them um, even higher then to make sure well, that you I think don't they, they are working in terms of houses. Odd. They are working in terms of... Um, uh, in, t- in terms of uh, the duplexes and so on. Uh, obviously, apartments are separate uh, to that. But if you look at the fact that with last year, about 20-odd thousand houses were, were, were built. This year, we're looking at about 24,500. Mm. We need supply across the board. Um, and that inf- inc- includes private sector investment also. Uh, we need to get to 33,000, 35,000 uh, units per year. The bulk of, you know, the, the state is allocating 4 billion per annum. So that's a huge state involvement in Mm. housing uh, and investment in housing across the board uh, and that will continue for the next five years and beyond. Do you understand um, that people don't always feel like they, they see delivery of that on the ground? Like, for example, you know, I drive through Dublin every day on the way to work and I pass almost entire streets that are effectively derelict properties which are there, which are serviced, which could be used. Um, I was driving here to court this morning and I saw much the same. I've had people send me pictures this morning asking why is all of this acceptable? That for a country which is in the midst of a crisis or a disaster, whatever label you'd like to put on it, it doesn't seem like there there is the same level of initiative or vigour that there ought to be. But there is. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is we did lose precious time last year with the, the, the lockdown and, and, and the previous year. That I accept. Um, but um, I've established a full delivery unit within government across Secretary Generals, across every government department to deliver. Uh, we do have planning objections. We have people objecting to housing and political parties objecting to political housing across the board. That said... We need to get the momentum up to 33,000, 35,000 per annum. Um, 
and the momentum is building, but it's not quick enough for people. That mm-hmm. I understand. Rents are too high. I understand the pressures on people in trying to buy a house at an affordable level. Well, so whole, people begin to so see progress. A whole suite. Well, I think we're beginning to see progress already, and for and this year, well, you, you might see it in the statistics. But when when are people going to see it in the market? When is there going to be a leveling when, when, off? When, when, when get, is rent going to get cheaper? When we get supply up to a, a really significant level, it's a, it's a supply issue. We just we are simply not building enough houses and we haven't been building enough houses for the last five or six years. That's the fundamental issue in terms of, of, of the house, of the housing situation in Ireland. We have over five million. Population is a big factor. The growth of the Irish population perhaps is something that hasn't been taken into account across a range of public services. And in my view, the next census will reveal, you know, a significant population growth. If you look at where we were in, in, in the early 1990s, for example, mm. compared to population now uh, and therefore, but we need to move significantly beyond the 20,000 figures that we have at the moment. 20,000 last year, 24.5 at the end of this year. We have to get significantly above that yeah. to it, put a dent into this it, situation. Is 33,000 actually enough considering it, that there, there is, there's 10,049 people who are staying in emergency accommodation as per the latest state figures but that doesn't include people who are couch surfing or are still living with their yeah. parents or they're in accommodation which is no longer appropriate to their, their family size. So even if you were to create enough units for 10,000 people overnight you still wouldn't address the problem. So is 33,000 actually enough or do you need to well, we need that again? Well th- th- those are the best estimates that have been presented to us in advance of Housing for All which still remains the most substantive comprehensive policy document on housing and policy initiative. I haven't seen anybody else produce anything as an alternative to Housing for All because broad suite of policies from social to affordable to cost rental uh, to the, the Land Development Agency which is now gaining momentum as well. So people haven't really the opposition party Parties have not come up with any substantive alternative. But to your point, yes, I think we need to review those figures and keep them under constant review because it is very plausible that you might need more than 33,000 per annum over a sustained period of time. Um, to, 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 to really put a dent into this situation um, and to give people really um, options yeah. in terms of affordability and, and, and models like cost rental I would like to see grow more faster and more significantly. We also need to look at more different ways of building houses Mm. and new technologies and there is investment going on there to get houses built faster. Uh, You you mentioned that uh, COVID uh, waylaid the progress on on some of that front and that not enough was done in the previous five or six years. Um, Would you like to see your party hang on to the housing brief then after uh, December when you're going to be standing down as Taoiseach and there's likely to be some class of a a mini reshuffle going on? Well again that's a matter that the the three parties will discuss but my own view is that housing has been central to the programme for government um, prior to COVID um, you know, or, or the war in Ukraine it was housing, uh, health reform climate uh, as, mm. as a big issues and climate still remains an existential issue as we can see across the continent right now in terms of massive heat yeah. waves and so on so th- those are big three issues and uh, education and childcare with those mm. um, Is that suggesting that so you, you haven't actually had a discussion no, with the other party leaders no, about we which cabinet jobs will be No we haven't, no, we haven't. Yeah, well, but I would make the point that irrespective of who forms you know, what party has what portfolio. These are central programme for government uh, priorities mm. that drive the agenda of the government irrespective of who's in any mm. particular office because sometimes I think we, we're, we're a government that has to work for the people not for each other's yeah. parties and I think that's important in terms of health, in terms of housing, in terms sure. of education. Uh, you're going to tell me that you haven't thought about it because it's six months away and, and that of course is going to be your default answer so let's maybe skip to your secondary one of have you given any thought to which government department you'd like to take on when you become Tornista? On December the 15th? Um, not yet, no. I'm concentrating on, on doing my job as Taoiseach uh, and uh, we will in the fullness of time 
discuss mm. all of those issues with, uh, with the other, my other colleagues. Yeah. You've been around uh, cabinet for, uh, in fact, 25 years, possibly this week, I think was the first time you were appointed to cabinet back in, in 1997. Uh, you've been through quite a lot of jobs in the meantime, so it'd be very difficult to find a cabinet job that you hadn't served in at one point. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't actually. I well, mean, high, I, well, higher I education in, is a job that which probably I was in only four, exists. I think uh, yeah. prior, prior to two thousand well, and eleven. Higher and, education uh, is one which which exists largely at your behest because you were very keen that there needed to be a separate cabinet ministry for it before the government was formed. I was yeah. To take on? yeah, it was one that I was uh, you know from a policy perspective, I felt it was very important in terms of the future of this country. Uh, that we had a voice at the cabinet table arguing for skills, arguing for third level and research in particular because I believe the jobs of the future are in research mm. and value-add research. And if you look at a lot of the foreign direct investment and or success, last year was the biggest year in record in terms of foreign direct investment announcements coming into this country. Research is the key to a lot of that. And so it is a very important portfolio. Uh, and I think, you know, Simon Harris... Uh, is working and has, has, I think, got that department up and running fairly quickly uh, in the two years uh, to good effect. Um, but again, uh, in, in, in terms of any particular portfolio mm. uh, that I might choose, that's a matter for, uh, for, for later on in the year. How close to December the 15th does it come before you start having those discussions? Uh, it'll be done in, in, in good time uh, in advance, obviously, to, 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 to have yeah. a proper uh, ordered um Change. Have you any concern about the appointment of Leo Varadkar as Taoiseach again if there is still a DPP question mark hanging over his head about whether he committed acts of corruption the last time he held that office? Well, I have a clear view in terms of, uh, you know, people are entitled to due process. And I've said that consistently uh, on this. And, and, and that still remains my view. Does uh, the office of Taoiseach uh, not require more than just due process and the presumption of guilt? That, it, that the moral standards for someone occupying that office are so much higher that even the question mark or a suspicion or a pending DPP but, but direction? It, yeah, but it's Suspicions could be hung over anybody by virtue of someone making a complaint to a Garda and then that gets has to necessarily but get... This is a complaint which was investigated oh, for 18 oh, months. Oh, I know, sitting with but, but my, point is, my point is that, uh, that to use that as a threshold a yardstick would be a fairly serious departure in my view in terms of who can hold office and who cannot hold office. I think it's much safer in our constitutional framework and criminal justice system that due process should be allowed to uh, happen. You know, you know, I genuinely believe that. And it's not to do with the personality of Leo Vadkar or the position he holds. I think it's a general principle that we should adhere to in society. I think there can be a tendency in modern society to rush to judgment on a whole range of issues and, and, and to undermine people before they have even the chance to defend themselves. But do you accept that not everyone, even in your party, let alone your colleagues in other government parties, might have that same view, that they might think that if this is not resolved one way or other, if the DPP has not decided, uh, given a clear direction one way or another, that the element of doubt and the, the damage that could be done to the office of Taoiseach would be so great that they couldn't facilitate. Well, I'm, I mean, I haven't had huge feedback on that uh, within my own party. I think people have different views. That's life We're in, in a democracy. But I have a, a basic view in terms of the principles we should always adhere to uh, in terms of any assertions that are made against individuals or that are, you know, matters that Gardaí look into or that the mm. DPP is making an assessment. Would on. it be helpful if the DPP uh, issued a direction sooner rather than later? The DPP is an independent office and I'm not going to comment one way or the other on how it delivers. You could argue that, that their, their work becomes political if they allow no, this to drag on. I wouldn't argue that. I think it's a matter for the DPP. We cannot have politicians endeavouring to pressurise the DPP or in any way put pressure on them or interfere. Uh, depending on which series of opinion polls you look at, your party is averaging somewhere around the uh, 18 or 19% mark. That's three points lower than it was in the general election a couple of years ago. Um, Sinn Féin are at 37%. By some polls, they are polling as well as yourselves and Fine Gael combined. Does that worry you? 
I would disagree with your assessment. We would see ourselves as above, marginally above our um, general election performance if you compare the, the, the house to house or the person to person polls as opposed to the internet panel polls. And there are significant differences between the two, as you know, and we've tracked this. Uh, so that's where we see ourselves um, right now. And again, polls don't determine elections. Uh, we know that from experience. Uh, I had all of this before 2016. Uh, I had mm. it before 2020. Uh, and indeed in 2020 you, you weren't we were averaging, higher you weren't averaging polls. 18 points behind your rival at that no, we point we were actually though. much higher and we didn't get <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, but, but the same principle applies at but you one stage you, you early on you were competing with a rival that was in the high 30s no, but in the early election we were put up I think close to 30 odd in, at the very first opinion poll in, before the last general election uh, and we knew that didn't quite adhere because there's a dynamic in the election campaign itself and there will be a dynamic in the, ne- the next election campaign, campaign that will determine uh, the, the support levels of, of every political party but we're actually in a strong healthy position as a political party uh, and I, by the way I've been around the country and I've met many people in different w- w- streets roads wherever uh, just in Killarney and, and, and Tralee um, on, on, on Friday and a very warm reception from people uh, as, we, as we walked around well, people so, so been, the headline figures you see then in the they don't, say, they don't worry me they don't worry me actually but also you, you don't uh, agree with them but I think there's a, there's a, f- a significant gap between the, the person-to-person polls and the, okay. the internet panel polls. That's a matter for pollsters to mm. work out. I'm not going to get involved we'll in that. in the next election. But if I was to, but one thing that's important for government and for anyone in, in politics, if you allow yourself to be influenced, overly influenced by polls, you'll never make a decision and you'll never do what's right for the country. Short-termism is something we should avoid in terms okay. of making the right decisions for the country. So if, if long-termism is the best way to go, then do you intend to uh, run the party into the next general election? I, sir, I do, I do indeed. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Leader Fida Fall, uh, Fall uh, Taoiseach and uh, TD for Cork South Central, Miel Martin, thank you very much for coming into us this lunchtime in our studios here in the Republic of Work. Thank you very much indeed. On the Record with Gavin Riley, Brought to you by PwC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.